Hey guys, this is Emma from The Horse Cure, the podcast for those of us who know that horses really are the cure for all that ails you. Today, Dr. Kenton Morgan, DVM, talks with me about vaccinations and worming. We start with which vaccinations are must-haves in your basic horse husbandry and why, then flow to how you can work to keep intestinal parasites low for your equine buddy. Dr. Morgan works with Zoetis, maker of some familiar brand names like Quest Wormers and Innovator Vaccines. Zoetis is known for leading the pack in designing products and services that help us keep our animals in their best health. Well, Dr. Morgan, thank you so much for spending time with me today. Uh, We're talking about vaccinations and worming, and I'm really excited. I've been a horse person for a bazillion years, and so I know some stuff, but I think I just know what I've always been told. So I'm really excited to hear from you what is necessary, what is beneficial, and why. So thank you. Thank you very much. My pleasure. Okay. Well, Dr. Morgan, so we'll start out with vaccinations. Why are vaccinations so important for the regular horse? I guess I understand stand, you know, horses that are transported everywhere or maybe shown every weekend. But what about the regular horse? Why are vaccinations necessary? Sure, Emma, that's a good question. And certainly all horses, depending on the disease that is in question, all horses are potentially exposed. As an example, what the American Association of Equine Practitioners many times referred to as AAEP, they refer to these important antigens as what they call core, the core antigens or core diseases. And what this tells us is that they've designated them as core because every horse is potentially exposed. And that's whether the horse is living in your backyard, it's the only horse in the neighborhood, whatever it does for a living, even up to the high performance horse where you're loading it onto a trailer and hauling it down the road every week, all of these animals are potentially exposed to these core diseases. And the core diseases are composed of West Nile virus, Eastern equine encephalitis, Western equine encephalitis, and all three of those are mosquito-borne. So all horses are potentially exposed to mosquitoes. And then the next one is tetanus. Tetanus is a bacterial disease and it's an environmental exposure. So all horses are potentially exposed to that. And then lastly is rabies, which is a wildlife vector type borne disease where everyone's familiar with that. Skunks, raccoons, bats, foxes, they're uh, very predominant vectors of the rabies virus. And so all horses are potentially exposed. And that's why even the backyard horse should receive at least those five basic core antigens and be protected against those. The other thing about those diseases, the vaccines that we have for them are very effective. They're very effective at preventing those diseases. Now, recognizing that no vaccine is 100%, these are exceptionally good at preventing disease. So in other words, there's really no reason why a horse should ever die from tetanus or rabies or eastern encephalitis or West Nile, etc. because the vaccines are available that are very good to protect the horse. Okay, so as far as rabies go, this is going to show my ignorance here. Is that just a bite? Is that like you get it from saliva or can that be in feces and stuff too? By the bite of an infected animal. Now, that exposure, there can be a secondary, a less likely exposure, but the most common direct exposure is from a bite of an infected animal where the virus is transmitted through the the saliva, just like you say. But there can also be just mucous membrane exposure. So if there's a rabid animal and they can be exposed to the, you know, the mouth, the nose, the eyes of a susceptible animal, then viral exposure can occur that way. That's not common, but that's a possibility. The other thing to think about, when you know, a lot of people think about skunks and raccoons, and they say, oh, they never come into my barn. Well, yeah, they probably do. If you set up some cameras at night, you know, those game cameras, you'd probably be surprised at some of the critters <laughs> that come in your barn at night. 
I bet but the so. other thing is our bats are predominant exposure risk and you know bats certainly get in barns and they will be around they're very good at catching insects and that sort of thing but the bat population they are uh, exposure risk for rabies and all those diseases that i mentioned earlier another reason it's so important to vaccinate our horses against those diseases is that they all have very high mortality rates. Rabies is 100%, you know, kills 100% of the animals that come down with clinical disease. Uh, Eastern equine encephalitis, many times referred to as sleeping sickness, has about a 90% mortality rate. West Nile virus, about a 30 to 35% mortality rate. And tetanus, probably somewhere between 70 and 85% mortality rate. Western equine encephalitis, which is also a part of that group of diseases that I mentioned, is about 60 percent, about a 60 percent mortality rate. However, we don't see that commonly anymore in the United States. We haven't had a confirmed case in a few years, but we still want to be vigilant and include that in our vaccination program. So all those diseases have high mortality rates. They will kill our horse and they are just so easily prevented by the use of vaccines. So you said, you know, West Nile doesn't seem to have as high a mortality rate, but what does life after West Nile look like? Because it's not real pretty. Is that correct? That's correct. Many of the horses that come down with clinical West Nile, you know, where they're showing neurologic disease due to the West Nile virus, they can have long-term effects. Now, not all of them, but a pretty good percentage of them can. And that may be up for six months or it could be indefinitely after they've recovered from their initial disease episode. So it can have lingering effects for a long period of time. And I believe in my area, which is kind of northern Midwest, um, the equine influenza is recommended to be vaccinated regularly as well. Can you talk a little bit about that one? Yeah, equine influenza and then kind of a similar virus, if you will, a different but similar virus as far as the disease it causes is also what we call equine herpes virus, or some people may recognize it as rhino, rhino pneumonitis. Both of those are respiratory viruses of the horse. They would be what we call risk-based type antigens or diseases. In other words, not every horse may need to be vaccinated for flu and herpes, but any of your animals, if they're mixing with other horses, if you're taking them out to trail rides, if you're putting them in a trailer and competing with them on any kind of regular basis, they definitely definitely need to have both of those, the, the equine influenza virus vaccine and the equine herpes virus vaccine. Both okay. of those are very important. It's a common respiratory disease, especially in our younger horses. Uh, herpes, of course, it can do some other bad things in horses besides respiratory disease, which is the most common clinical presentation of that virus. It can also cause abortion in pregnant mares. And on certain occasions, it's somewhat rare or is rare, but when it happens, it can be devastating. And that's the neurologic form of equine herpes virus, which can carries a pretty high mortality rate as well. And how can those viruses be transmitted? Is that through the air? Is that water? Primarily direct aerosol okay. or direct exposure or aerosol exposure. Okay. However, you bring up a good point. If horses share common watering holes or buckets, tanks, those kinds of things, potentially those viruses can certainly be spread in that fashion. There are other respiratory bugs that can be spread by that fashion. And then the other thing we have to remember about, sometimes we can and spread those viruses, we being the people taking care of the horses. We go from one horse to another. If we've got a sick horse, we're, you know, using things in the stall to clean the stall. We may get some contamination, some virus on our hands, unbeknownst to us, and go from stall to stall with that. You know, the water hose that we stick in each of the buckets down the sure. down the shed row, that can be a potential exposure risk. So there are a lot, we call those fomites. 
And those are inanimate objects that can become contaminated with the virus and then spread from one horse to another. So we just have to be really vigilant when it comes to those types of things. Dr. Morgan, how often should a horse be vaccinated? And tell me about boosters. Well, if the horse has never been vaccinated before, for most of the there are a few exceptions, but we won't get into the details on that today. But for the vast majority of the vaccines that we use in our horses, if we've got an adult horse and they've never been vaccinated before, then they need two initial doses at about three to four weeks apart. Okay. This is because of kind of how the immune system works. And that first dose kind of sensitizes the immune system to these antigens. And then the second dose, we get a really strong booster response. And there are tons of different types of cells within that immune response, but a very important subpopulation of cells are what we call memory cells. And these memory cells kind of are, just like the name implies, they're stamped with the ability to remember these different, you know, whether it's a flu virus or a herpes virus or a rabies virus. And then down the road, if the immune system sees one of those pathogens again, it remembers and begins to produce a good immune response to that. So, okay. so the initial round for an adult horse would be two doses typically. And then most like the core antigens, depending on where we live in the United States, a yearly booster may be very sufficient. If you're in the upper Midwest, probably a yearly booster is all you need for those core antigens. You know, that's rabies, tetanus, eastern, western, encephalitis, and West Nile. Now, if you get down in the southern part of the United States, you get down in Florida where they have mosquito pressure year-round, they may get those vaccinations twice a year. So it does vary, and that's why it's important to have a veterinarian in the loop. Talk to your veterinarian, help them put together a vaccination program for you, and get that all started. And ideally, we'd like the veterinarian to administer those vaccines, certainly, and get good program off and going for you. Okay. Now, that's for the core antigens. For the risk-based antigens, and, and there are a lot of them, we've just mentioned the flu and the herpes here so far, but for flu and herpes, again, going back to the American Association of Equine Practitioners, they have some very nice vaccination guidelines that lay out some recommendations, and these should be viewed just as that. They're just recommendations. The final word on how you should vaccinate your horse should come from your local veterinarian. But the AP for those horses that are in performance, that are the higher risk horses that are going to be exposed to other animals, as we mentioned just a few minutes ago, they need to be vaccinated. Again, get the initial two dose series and then be boosted every six months throughout the year. And that will help protect them against those respiratory viruses. Okay. And then I've got a question. So it was suggested to me at one point to get, you know, the EWT separate from your rhino flu, separate from your West Nile, and then vaccinate each one every two weeks or so. Give your horse's body a little time to relax rather than coming at it with like, say, a seven-way or a five-way shot. Sure. What do you think about that? You know, the the big combinations are certainly convenient. Mm -hmm. understand that. And I appreciate that. You can give one dose and get, you know, many of the antigens into that animal that, that we're concerned about. Some recent work has demonstrated that if we do separate them out and not necessarily on separate days, just giving separate injections. In other words, there are some of these antigens, or the antigens are the things, you know, the good things we put in vaccines, the viruses and the bacteria that help prevent disease. If we separate certain antigens from others, we just get a better immune response. In other words, the core antigens that we've mentioned now two or three times, if we separate them, and do not use them in the bigger combinations with, say, flu and rhino, we find we get a stronger response, particularly okay. to the flu or the influenza. Now, we're still giving them on the same day, so we don't have to come back a second or third trip to do that. And I know that there are some horse owners who have concerns, well, we're giving them too much stuff. 
Mm-hmm. You know, on one day, can we separate that out? And that can be done. It certainly adds a fair amount of expense to that. But immunologically, there's really no great advantage to, you know, give two or three antigens today, wait two or three weeks, give another two or three antigens, that sort of thing. Okay. Immunologically, there's not really an advantage to that. And the other thing to remember, and I, I bounced this off of an immunologist several years ago, similar type question, is it okay to give two or three antigens vaccines today, wait 10 days and give another, wait 10 days to give another. And he goes, well, there seems to be something really important about that three-week interval. He goes, I don't recommend anything in a shorter interval than three weeks. So in other words, give a vaccination today. If we're going to go back and give another one, he always recommended at least three weeks. And his rationale was if we go back earlier, say we go back a week or 10 days later, we may, and then give another vaccination, we may actually have a rather negative effect on the immune response that was the horse was processing to the first injection that we gave. Does that make sense? Yes. Okay. So that, and, and it can be done again, like I say, there's, there's no problem with doing that. It's just probably sometimes our intervals, if we come back a week or 10 days later, probably a little bit shorter than what we need to consider. We might want to consider a three-week interval between our different vaccinations. And if we do that, that's going to spread those vaccinations out pretty significantly, particularly in the spring of the year. And, you know, the mosquitoes are starting to come around and that sort of thing. And so I think we need to be careful with how we do that. It's okay to do it. If you get buy-in from your veterinarian, that's fine. But I think we need to be prudent on how that's done. And so there again, it just reinforces the importance of having a veterinarian involved in this whole process with the horse owner. So if you're doing the the separate vaccinations, but on the same day, you could do left side of the neck for you know your EWT. You could do right side of the neck for your rhino flu and perhaps a hip. I've not given a hip vaccination, but I know you can do that maybe for West Nile. Is that kind of what you're saying? Or, or something? You could. You could spread those out. Probably what we would recommend is giving your core antigens, the core antigens, those five, the five big ones, if you will, uh, they can all be given in combination. It's really nice to separate the flu and the rhino out as a separate flu-rhino combo shot. When we talk about where to give those, the neck is certainly the most common place and that's fine. The hip, I prefer to go in kind of the back side of that hind leg rather than over the hip or the croup area, kind of the back side of that hind leg, what we call the semimembranosus tendinosus area. You know, it would be definitely below the level of the tail head on the back side of that leg in those big muscles. Okay. on the backside of the leg. That's, and that's fine. It's a good place to give vaccinations if you've got a horse that tolerates that okay. I think that that is comprehensive and really informative. Would you like to move on to deworming? I've got some warming questions for you as well. Sure. Okay. Sure, that'd be fine. All right. So why is deworming such a big deal? Well, intestinal parasites in horses are, they're very common, almost ubiquitous. Okay. You know, they're just about everywhere you want to you wanna check for them, we find them. And, and certain parasites are more important at different ages of the horse's life cycle than others. And so there again, we have to be aware of that. We have to be aware that some of the dewormers we have on the market, they kill certain parasites, but not all parasites. Again, different times of the life cycle of that animal, it's appropriate to use a specific dewormer. And then maybe later in life, that would not be the one that would be our first choice off the shelf to use in that particular animal. So it's important to know during the lifespan of that horse, which are the parasites that pose the greatest risk and then choose those dewormers. We call them anthelmintics, but 
choose those dewormers that then are most effective against those targeted parasites. Okay. And just like I mentioned when we were talking about the vaccines, this is why it's so important to have a veterinarian involved with your internal parasite control program because they will know at different ages of the horse's life which parasites are of most concern and then they will also know which of the different dewormers are effective against those parasites. And then what throws another big wrench into this whole process, if you will, is the fact that we there's fair amount of what we call parasite resistance. They're resistant to different dewormers or anthelmintics uh, of certain parasites. And there again, we need to know that and your veterinarian does. And so they can steer you to or away from a specific anthelmintic so that you're going to get the best bang for your buck, so to speak, and get the best control in that horse. A couple of examples in the young horse. For the sake of this discussion, let's talk about horses that are 10 months of age or younger. Okay. Roundworms. Roundworms are a big concern in the young horse. And there are some anthelmintics that are very effective against roundworms. And then there are a couple of other very popular anthelmintics or dewormers, which are not. They're great for horses as they get a little bit older because they have a different set of parasites that we're concerned about. But in the young horse, the roundworms, there are certain drugs that are way more effective than others. And so we need to know that. Okay. Uh, then as the horse matures, for reasons that we don't completely understand as horses get older, they develop a natural resistance to the roundworms. They're not affected by them anymore. It's very rare for an adult healthy horse to have roundworms. It's very common for foals to have roundworms, but it's very uncommon for adult horses to have roundworms. So at that point in their life, once they're really past about age 12 to 15 months, we don't really even worry too much about roundworms for the most part. Now we begin to worry about what we call small strongyles, which is a different parasite, tapeworms, as the horses pass that year of age point. We begin to worry about tapeworms and some other things. So specific drugs are required to get tapeworms, and, and we need to know which drugs work for that and which don't. It's a little more complicated than just going out and buying a pasty warmer, you know, <laughs> off the shelf. Sure. And, uh, hey, I used the yellow box last time, so this time I use a red box and it's a different drug, and that's not always the case. So it's really important to have some good input from your veterinarian. And so fecal exams, how often should one do that for, you know, ideal care as far as keeping your worm count down? Fecal egg count, that's kind of foundational to this whole deworming program, and that's why, again, we want the veterinarian involved. They're the ones that will get the fecal egg count done for us and can interpret the results of that and kind of help put some uh, risk values, if you will, to those horses. Assigning those risk values, we can better determine, okay, this horse is a lower-risk animal, so it's going to need deworming. Say it'll need a good spring and a good fall deworming program based on the fecal egg count. Now, this horse has a much higher fecal egg count on the farm. It's mixed with many of the horses. They've got a high stocking density, some other things going on there. This is a higher-risk horse, and so it may need a more frequent deworming program. But what we're wanting to get away from is the kind of what we call the old style or recipe of deworming where everything on the farm gets dewormed every 60 days, okay. just right through the calendar year. We don't want to do that because not every animal on the farm needs that frequent deworming. And I think everyone can appreciate that the more we expose a population of parasites, the more frequently we expose that population of parasites to dewormers over and over and over again at shorter intervals, we are going to speed up this process that we refer to as selection for resistance. 
So I think that's probably intuitive to anyone that listening to us today. And so by more strategically deworming these, have a more of an individualized deworming program, if you will, based on that horse, you know, the amount of eggs that's shedding into the environment, you know, the stocking density, there's a lot of other factors that go into that. We can actually do a very good job of controlling the internal parasites and not over-treating the animal. When we over-treat them and treat more frequently than we really need to, we will contribute to this selection for resistance or resistant parasites. So we want to stay away from that. And so those fecal egg counts, they're foundational okay. to that. So as far as how frequent to do that in the adult horse, doing them probably once a year is adequate. Some recommend twice a year, and that's great. If we can get that done twice a year, that's even better. Okay. But a good fecal egg count and probably the best time to do that is in the spring. I always say when the grass is greenest, you know, that's a good time to do a fecal egg count. But we don't want to do a fecal egg count two weeks after we've dewormed the horse because it's not going to give us an accurate reading. Yeah, hopefully it looks pretty clean at that point. Yeah. <laughs> right. Exactly. There again, the timing is critical for those and your veterinarian can tell you how long after a particular dewormer you've used is it appropriate to do a fecal egg count to get that baseline for that particular animal. There is a way that we can also fecal egg counts to assess the effectiveness of the dewormer. Those are called fecal egg count reduction tests. That is where we actually give the dewormer and pull a fecal egg count that day, pull a stool sample and do a fecal egg count, have the veterinarian do that for us, and then we wait about two weeks and we do another fecal egg count. And then we compare the difference to those two fecal egg counts and see how much of a reduction we have in the eggs that are in the parasite eggs that are in that stool sample. That will tell us how effective that particular dewormer is at reducing the worm burden in that animal. So that's another tool that the veterinarian can use to evaluate our products and tell us if they're still working for us. I think that would be really fascinating. You could do all kinds of testing on different horses who are doing different things at different stages in their lives. That'd be that'd be really interesting. Yes. Yeah. And the fecal egg counts, you know, they're not terribly expensive, certainly. They give us a lot of information, so they're a very good management tool. And it may be such that by doing those fecal egg counts, especially if we're using the old-style deworming, where we're deworming everything every, like I say, 60 to 90 days on the farm or at the barn or in the premise, by doing fecal egg counts, many of those horses, we may be able to reduce the amount of anthelmintic that they're actually required for them. And so we may just be able to do a, sp a good spring, a good broad spectrum dewormer or anthelminic in the spring and another one in the fall. Particularly, we want to think about tapeworms and bots and insisted small strong jaws in the fall. And there are certain products that work very well for that. And so it may be such that by doing fecal egg counts, particularly if an owner has maybe a big boarding barn or a number of horses in the pasture, they may actually save money, still do a good job, still do a good job of controlling the parasites, but they may actually be able to save money on their deworming products by doing appropriate fecal egg counts on these horses and, and tweaking their program. Now tell me about dosing because, you know, I've got a regular sized horse and I usually use about a tube worth of wormer. But yeah, how can we be specific and accurate and really as useful as we can possibly be with these drugs for, you know, the average horse person? You bet. And, you know, all these anthelminic products, they're developed by the drug companies on a per weight basis. In other words, the dosage has been determined based on the size of the animal, right? Sure. It's, it's intuitive. It's a no-brainer there. Now, the other thing is they, they need to be aware that there are tubes of dewormer that are designed to, to deworm up to a 1,500-pound horse, and there's others for 11 or 1,200-pound horse. And so, number one, we need to always read the label on them and see what the directions are to give. And number two, we need to know what the weight of our horse is. Ideally, that'd be stand them on a scale and get an 
a very accurate weight, but most of us don't have access to that, certainly. Now, some of the veterinary clinics, they have horse scales, and it's good to capture weight. If you take your horse in, regardless of why the horse goes into the clinic, they usually capture their weight and have it on their medical record, and that's good to know. But what I've found over the years as a veterinarian, and I'm certainly guilty of this too, my ability to estimate the weight of the horse is not nearly as good as I think it is. If you want to have fun, take a group of really good horsemen, bring out about three different... (laughs) body type horses and have already weighed them on the scale, know exactly what their weight is, and then bring them out and make them write down what the <laughs> weight is of each of those horses and then tell them. And uh, you'll find even, you know, very seasoned, experienced horse people, it is challenging to get an accurate weight. And so the next best thing, if we don't have a scale, is to do a weight tape. And those are available. You know, there are many different types of weight tapes that are out there. Um, they're very simple. You put them around typically around the withers of the horse there again it'll tell you exactly where to place the tape and you pull it around you pull the one end and then you match it up where it faces on the on the other corresponding other end of that tape and it will give you the weight of the horse and those are pretty accurate they're not exact Mm -hmm. but they're definitely typically they're more accurate than any of us are going to eyeball that horse okay and so that's a better way to give an accurate dose of our anthelmintic based on the weight of the horse and why that's important if we underdose them there's a couple of couple of negative things underdosing horses with anthelmintic can actually contribute to parasite resistance over time that we mentioned earlier And then also, if we really grossly underdose them, obviously it's not going to be effective. So two things we don't want to happen. We we want the dewormer to work and we don't want to select resistance. And if we underdose them, particularly if it's a significant underdosing, we we contribute to both of those things. So overdosing, you know, certainly there's a safety range on these products and the anthelminics are quite safe, but overdosing them, there's really no big advantage to doing that. They're not going to work better just because we gave 20 or 30% more than we should have. Okay. Um, they're designed to work at the dose on the label. And so by giving that extra dewormer, there's really no great advantage to that. It's adding cost to it and it's an unnecessary cost. Those are the things to keep in mind and why it's so important to get an accurate dosing on that horse. They're just, we're going to get the best bang for our buck by giving that accurate dose. And if we underdose, we are going to contribute to some problems such as the development of resistance. Dr. Morgan, give me just a real quick blurb about why you love Zoetis products. Why does Zoetis really ring true for you? Because I know they do a lot of different products, but there are so many out there. What is best about Zoetis for you? Why do you feel so strongly about them? I think the most important thing for me is that Zoetis is very much a science-driven company, and so they really invest in science. We invest a ton of money every year in research and development. And obviously, that's the lifeblood, the, the lifeline, if you will, of any pharmaceutical company is what are the new things coming down the pike, if you will. But we invest a t- tremendous amount in science so that we know how these products work. We know that they're going to work well. And then once we have those products approved and in the marketplace, we continue to invest in them. We continue to do what we call field-based research to make sure that these products are performing like they should. Sometimes we'll even compare them to other products to see if maybe there's a, an advantage to using product A over product B. So I just like the, I really like the science-based approach that Zoetis has. They invest heavily in it, and I think it shows with the type of products that we have out there. They're just, they're really good, solid products. Many of them are market-leading products, and I think that attests to this commitment to good science that Zoetis has made over the years. Excellent. Okay. Well, good. Well, Dr. Morgan, I think those are the questions I have for you. I think that was really, that covered so many bases and gave so much information, but useful stuff that I can go and put to work right now. So I want to thank you very 
very sincerely for your time and um, for sharing with us. Very good. It's my pleasure. Like I say, Emma, and anything we can do to help, just let us know. Okay. Well, I appreciate it. I really sincerely do and hope you have a wonderful rest of your spring. Thank you. Same to you. Okay. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Morgan. The Wormer game has changed quite a lot since I was young, and while I've done my best to keep up with best practices, I'm so thankful to Dr. Morgan and Zoetis for bringing the latest research today. I appreciate his recommendation to grow that relationship with your vet as well. Find one you can communicate well with and keep them close. Vets, like your regular family doctor, are best able to help prevent sickness and injury when you keep them in the loop and utilize them when you have questions. And the folks at Zoetis were so easy for me to talk with. If you want to learn more about Zoetis and what they have to offer, Check out our show notes or head to Zoetis.com. Thank you, Dr. Morgan, and thank you for listening to The Horse Cure. Thank you for listening to The Horse Cure Podcast, the podcast for those of us who know that horses really are the cure for all that ails you. You can find more information about each episode and more podcasts at TheHorseCure.com and by following us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter.